0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Psalm uh, 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that you have set your king on your holy hill on Mount Zion. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that we might see him and behold him and worship him and love him. We pray that you would do all these things for our own joy and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good, it's good to see a, a fuller room uh, this evening. Uh, my name's Nathan, if I haven't met you, there's several that I think I haven't met uh, tonight. So I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, we can exchange eyeballs uh, with one another and then you can know what I look like, and maybe someday I can see your face as well. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can open in Psalm 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can feel free to grab one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew. The translation there is just a little bit different than the English Standard Version that I'll be preaching from, but you'll be able to follow along well enough. Well, we are back in the Psalms for a few weeks, and I'm really excited about it. Um, We'll likely do three Psalms here to finish out August before, beginning of September, starting the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the resurrected Christ, the Acts of the Spirit of God in September. September! That's crazy. Uh, Like, we had our first Zoom church in mid-March. That's crazy. Logan and I were talking out in the foyer a few minutes ago, just saying, I can't believe it's already been seven days since we were just standing there talking. Like, the days go very slow, and the weeks go very, very fast. Well, Psalm 15, I have had a love-hate relationship with this psalm for over half of my life, uh, since I was about 13 or 14. When I was in the eighth grade, uh, my bros and I, my middle school bros, we, would spend, we were spending a lot of time reading and thinking about and talking about the psalms. Uh, my home church had a lot of just-out-of-college guys, like 23, 24, 25-year-olds that would hang out with the middle school and high school uh, high school students. So my pal Derek with this 20-something uh, named Paul, they were hanging out and they were reading Psalm 15 a lot. They read it often. They, Derek memorized it, and he was talking about it a lot. But I did not get it as an eighth grader. Uh, this psalm seemed very legalistic, very moralistic. Like this, The question seemed to be, who can live with God? Those who have their life together. And then my eighth grade self would look at myself and say, I don't have my life together. Uh, More often than not, I am failing and certainly not living up to the ideals and standards here put forward in Psalm 15. Though I I think I nailed it on not lending to people without interest. Like if somebody wanted a a cherry Coke or a a fruitopia or a surge uh, from the school vending machine, I would give them the 75 cents and not make them give me a dollar the next day. Nailed it. Uh, But my buddy Alex and I, uh, Alex and I were more drawn, not to Psalm 15, but one that followed a couple of chapters later, Psalm 18. Uh, Psalm 18 is more about the the mighty hand of God to save. Uh, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, uh, for you save a humble people. Psalm 18 says this God, his way is perfect the word of the Lord proves true, he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I loved Psalm 18 and I still do, but as much as I was drawn to it and away from Psalm 15 because of my like, um, allergy towards legalism in Psalm 15, uh, I was pretty consciously aware that the Psalm that Derek had memorized, Psalm 15, uh, was nothing to the Psalm uh, that I memorized in Psalm 18 because Psalm 15 has what? five verses. And Psalm 18 has like 50. So uh, who has two thumbs and is well aware of his righteousness before God uh, in memorizing his word? Well, the human heart is just (laughs) hopelessly meritorious. I was drawn away from legalism and then finding my worth in what I was doing. Well, before we get into the meat of Psalm 15, I want to take just a few moments to think about what our approach to it won't be and what our approach will be. There are some who use a text like this to teach or to believe kind of what I was getting at. What what does God require of you? Well, this. This is what God requires. Anything less is unacceptable. God's perfect standard is perfect holiness, and that is true. But then the conclusion and the call to action then is therefore like an unrelenting effort. Do not stop in becoming this kind of person, because without doing so, your assurance of salvation will never be secure. Your justification is never sure unless your sanctification is complete. In other words, your justification, your right standing before God, is never really sure unless you've become this kind of person, until you've become fully holy, your, your sanctification. There are some who even think that this psalm was a psalm that the high priest would be muttering to himself as he once a year entered into the temple and into the holy of holies. What does God require? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Almost like Indiana Jones, like walking into the spider webs and that first step to find the holy grail, like the penitent past, will pass, the penitent man will pass, the penitent man will pass, right? Uh, like fear and trembling as the uh, high priest entered into the temple to meet with God. This is what God requires. I must be this man. Now, while the pursuit of holiness is an undeniable reality in the life of Israel and in the Christian life, and our God is a consuming fire, the keeping of the law is never the answer. Paul and James say if you break one bit of the law, you have broken it all. And we as humans cannot. On our own willpower and effort become this. No human will ever perfectly live into the reality of Psalm 15, which then can lead us and leave us as dizzied and as confused. Richard Lovelace says this kind of understanding and practice can not only leave us dizzied, but can leave us radically insecure. He says in their day-to-day existence many Christians rely on their sanctification for their justification drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, from their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. So for as much as they might say that they are justified by Christ, for many Christians, uh, their experience reveals their belief is actually that they are justified by their works, by their obedience to God. But then this gets us into perhaps a second wrong approach to Psalm 15, what we might call like a a hyper-Lutheran approach. Luther helpfully showed that one function of the law was to expose our inability to keep it. This drives us to the finished work of of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus did perfectly keep the law. He kept it for us because we could not. And all of that is just so true, isn't it? But then the Lutheran reading can become a hyper-Lutheran reading when the takeaway becomes, so then therefore, none of my actions, none of my holiness, none of my sanctification, none of my pursuit of God actually matters. Because Jesus has accomplished everything, I don't have to worry about obedience. When God the Father sees me, he only sees Jesus, which is certainly true on the last day. But then today, we can think that then he does not care what I do, what I think, what I believe, how I live. And so books like One Way Love can become a popular bestseller at the Christian bookstore. That the gospel is only about God's reaching down to us in love. So just embrace that. Revel in that. Yes and amen. But then, a wrong Conclusion, then, is any attempts to return the love in obedience is inherently legalism, and it negates the gospel. The problem, of course, is this kind of approach ignores like the entire New Testament, where Peter repeats Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. Every single command of Paul that is concerned about conduct and about living, gigantic swaths of Jesus's teachings on ethics and obedience. Getting to the cross, getting to Jesus, and his finished work of obedience is the right move for any text in the Bible, but we want to be patient in how we get there. In 2016, uh, the Dallas Cowboys had the fourth overall pick in the NFL draft. Hang in there with me for just a second. Uh, and they used this pick. Uh, it's like a once-in-a-lifetime pick when you, get, when you get one so high. And they used this pick on a running back from Ohio State named Ezekiel Elliott, and people had unbelievably high hopes for this running back that were seemingly, in the first three or four games of the season, dashed. He looked to be like a first-round bust. The problem was, for Ezekiel Elliott, is that the NFL is much harder than college football. He was getting the ball and just running as fast as he could. But a running back has to learn to be patient. There are many moving parts in front of you. There are a bunch of guys working with a plan to open a hole for you, and you just have to wait for the hole to open. If you wait patiently for just one more second, you will run for first down, after first down, after first down. If you are impatient, you're going to look like a first-round bust. So we're going to get to Jesus here in the in Psalm 15, but we're going to do so patiently. We're going to wait for the hole to open and not to just say, who shall dwell on the hill of the Lord? Who will dwell with God? He who walks blamelessly. Any blameless people here? No? Good. Well, Jesus is, so let's just trust him. Good night. We're not going to do that. That's, that. that's a good application, but there's, this psalm is much deeper than that. So let's try to thread this needle between legalism, on the one hand, and license to just do whatever you want, on the other hand, in two halves here together. We're going to think about this text in two sections. We who dwell with God, first, and then second, are transformed by God. We who dwell with God are transformed by God. So first of all, we who dwell with God. Psalm 15 leads with a question, really two questions, driving at the same thing. And then it closes in verse 5 with a promise. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then the last sentence, He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's think a a little bit about what David is actually asking in verse 1. He says, O Lord, and if you'll see, especially if you have an ESV, uh, the, the, the word Lord is in all caps, which is the ESV editors trying to signify to you that the word that David actually wrote was God's covenant name, that of Yahweh. So David is saying, O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? And this is a clear reference to the tabernacle, the tent, the mobile temple of God's presence that traveled along with Israel as they moved from Egypt to Canaan, the land of the promise to Abraham, the place of settled peace of God's presence and of his blessing. And then he asks, who shall dwell on your holy hill the holy hill, or often your mountain, that is referenced over and over and over again in the Old Testament, referencing Mount Zion, the elevated hill on which the temple was finally built. While we definitely spent more time on the tabernacle in Exodus last year when we were going through that book, more on the tabernacle than the temple that was built under Solomon— And uh, they are, the temple and the tabernacle, very similar. So some of the things that we thought through last year, let's remember that the outer and the inner imagery of the tabernacle and the work of the priests keeping the tabernacle were meant to remind Israel of Eden. There are cherubim, some sort of angelic creatures embroidered on the inner curtains of the tabernacle, just like the cherubim in Eden. There are precious gems to be used, the same gems that were described in Genesis 2. And the work of the priests is often described with the same words that Adam worked and kept the garden. The priests were doing the exact same garden work in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so to quote what I said in November, partially quoting from another, that the tabernacle was the world as it was meant to be. A powerful piece of testimony to God the creator. A palace for a victorious king. Israel is to look around inside and outside and then summon up in their imaginations the ideal world. Ideal and separate from the mundane and the bland desert surrounding them. The tabernacle, the temple, the garden, all of these are small microcosm glimpses of what God intends for the entire universe, a place filled entirely with his consuming holiness and his life-giving glory, his kingdom to dwell with humanity in peace and in righteousness and in love and in joy. And so notice the words that David uses as he asks these questions. He doesn't say, "'O Lord, who shall enter your tent?' He doesn't say, "O oh Lord, who shall be allowed on your holy hill?" No, what David has in mind is a much fuller understanding of life with God than mere entrance. Who shall sojourn? Who shall travel? Shall walk? Shall continue in your tent, in your presence? Who shall dwell? Who shall live, abide, enjoy and flourish on your holy hill? in your presence. David is not considering all the nations out there who are not in covenant with God and how they are to enter into God's presence. He's asking rhetorically about himself and of his people, those who are already in covenant love with God. More sharply, one scholar writes, Psalm 15 is a summons for those who are already redeemed, not a strategy for getting redeemed. Now, we haven't gone through every single Psalm up to Psalm 15, uh, but Psalms 1 through 14 are just pretty heavy. Many of the ones that we thought through consecutively in 1 through 6, they're just heavy Psalms. Once you get through Psalm 1 and 2, they are almost exclusively up into Psalm 15, Psalms of lament. There is so much wickedness out there, David observes. Nothing is safe Everything seems tenuous. Everything seems to be hanging by a thread. But Psalm 15, with you, O God, dwelling with you, sojourning, traveling with you is a place of safety, a place of comfort amidst all of the threats and uncertainty. This is who you have created me to be, to live with you, to be loved by you, and to now then live and love for you and for your kingdom. To once again live like Adam, the truest version of myself, the image of God in trusting dependence, in faithful obedience, in working and keeping the place of your presence for your glory, for my own joy, and for the good of the world and the cosmos, that the place of your blessing might increase and expand. And so you'll notice that the order of this psalm and the order of our preaching subtitles here are really important. Psalm 15 is not transformed by God so that we might dwell with God, but rather the flip, the inverse of that. We who dwell with God are then transformed by God. The rest of Psalm 15 then are the qualities that God creates in his people as they are dwelling with him. Not the qualities that he is finding first in his people. That then they are acceptable to become his people or something like that. So if sojourning and dwelling with God, if walking and living with God is the entire point of the human existence, certainly of the Christian life, then let's now consider what a transformed life might actually look like. First, we thought about we who dwell with God. Now, secondly, are transformed by God. Verses two through five are not an exhaustive list of what people who follow God will now look like like many other similar lists in the Bible, these are a representative sample. We might even say that Habakkuk, the book that we last thought or went through, summarized perhaps in Habakkuk 2.4, perhaps even summarized Psalm 15.2-5 in one verse where Habakkuk wrote that the righteous man shall live by faith. That could be a a more distilled summary than what David has given us here in Psalm 15. Well, I've been hanging out with the, uh, the Richardson G.C., over the past few weeks, and together we've been reading James K.A. Smith's incredible book, Uh, You Are What You Love. And on Wednesday evening, we talked about that how we live is entirely dependent upon which story we think that we're living in. So twisting the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, Smith says that the typical American might answer the question, what is the chief purpose of man? The typical American might say to acquire stuff with the illusion that I can enjoy it forever. But if our restoried existence is about walking with God, about dwelling with God, if our restoried existence is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then by the power of the Spirit, He begins to change me from the inside out. Verse 2 He who walks blamelessly. And does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. The Christian life is not necessarily about like crowbarring moral virtue onto your life or even like paper macheing, like peace and grace and self control onto the external parts of your life. Jesus had plenty to say about this in confronting the whitewashed tombs that were the lives. Of many of the Pharisees. Who cares if things are nice and moral on the outside if the outside is just a holding pin of death? But the gospel resurrects the dead with streams of living water that transform the inside and then pour out to the outside. For someone who is walking progressively more closely and more intimately with God, speaking the truth, does not have to be crowbarred in it just comes forth; it comes from the heart. Now it might initially take much effort, just like learning to play a new instrument it takes years of practice, it takes years of training and retraining your mind and your fingers to work together, or maybe even thinking about our speech and speaking truth in our heart, perhaps uh, thinking about like playing a brass instrument might be more helpful. You can play many different notes uh, with the same valve combination or slide position. The way that you play different notes is by tightening or loosening your lips. I played the trombone in seventh and eighth grade, so I'm practically an expert. Uh, But the first few months of learning to play an instrument like this is just teaching your fingers, your mouth, where to go, how to work together, And especially in these first few weeks of learning to play a brass instrument, your mouth, your lips are sore. And we might think or call this kind of active attention that of first nature. That when you've then played for years and years and years, you no longer have to think. Playing has become second nature. You don't even have to think about it. And this is what the triune God who loves you and who has created you for himself who has created you for your own joy, desires for you to walk by the Spirit. The first many years of the Christian life, who are we kidding, the first many decades, and then perhaps a few more decades on top of that, are about intense training. About teaching your mind and your mouth and your heart to move together And sometimes, like playing a brass instrument, it is painful. Like learning to play a guitar, those fingertips that are sore for the first few weeks and the skin begins to fall off. That's gross. It's painful. But so that the first nature, active attention, so that by the Spirit of God and by intense training, by restoring and redisciplining ourselves, That we might become second nature virtuosos for eternity. Not to any glory or credit of his own people, this is where the analogy breaks down. A a virtuoso, a a violinist or a pianist, uh, is, is the one who gets all of the praise and all of the applause. But for the Christian who is wrapped up into the life of the triune God, experiencing and living a resurrected and transformed life lives to the praise of his glorious grace. And so walking blamelessly and speaking truth, the man dwelling with God has truth from his heart, and then he does not slander another. Throughout the whole of the scriptures, the Bible has so much to say about our speech, about our tongue being representative of what is in the heart. And slander here is pretty much gossip on steroids, And so to remind you of the difference between uh, gossip and flattery, gossip is what you say behind somebody's back, but that you would never say to their face, while flattery is something that you would say to someone's face while you would never say it behind their back. And neither are truthful, and neither are of love. And so in a season of heightened and even typed speech on social media or over email or over text, we need to consider this. We need to have serious first nature attention, intense training over our tongues and over our fingers. I think most of us know gossip and the slander of a friend. Uh, We know that to be ungodly, not right. We probably know this experientially or there's a possibility that your words might get back around to the person that you were speaking about, so you know that's probably not a wise idea. But can I challenge us in not also slandering those whom we don't know? That we don't speak about celebrities or politicians in a way that we wouldn't speak about them if they were in the room. That we speak about Michelle Lujan Grisham or Donald Trump or Joe Biden with our friends or over the internet in the exact same way that we would speak about them if they were sitting there with us. And if the response is, well, heck yeah, I'd say the same thing to their face, well, consider that just because you can doesn't necessarily mean that you should. How did Jesus or Paul speak to ruling governing authorities even when they were on trial for their lives? They spoke with honor. They spoke with deference. They spoke with respect. You might say they spoke with a second nature reality of walking by the Spirit, of graciousness, of gentleness, of peace, not just of courage and conviction. And so the man dwelling on the holy hill, he speaks truthfully. He does not slander another. And he also does no evil to his neighbor. He takes up, he, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. He is both willing to overlook evil offenses against himself that certainly isn't a natural response. That takes many years of retraining and walking by the Spirit, becoming second nature. I tend towards demands of justice or vindication or at least a public airing of grievances so everyone on my social media feed knows that I have been wronged. So is willing to overlook evil offenses against himself, but also not offending an evil against others. Do the people that know and interact with you have reason to believe that the transforming gospel that you claim to have been transformed by is actually transforming? Or do we speak and type and post and share no differently than our non-Christian neighbor? Now again, that's not to say that when someone becomes a Christian that they are like zapped with holiness so that now, every Christian only speaks truth, and no Christian will ever do evil again to another. Oh, I think we all know that to be experientially untrue. But again, a Christian, someone who is walking and dwelling with God, is not sinless, but a Christian does progressively sin less. They are a person, verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is not saying that God's people become now a pretentious, condemning, self-congratulating people. Like, look at all those vile people out there. I despise them. No, but God's people are people who actually agree with God in calling evil evil and in not calling evil good. One way that this very practically plays out again is politically, certainly in this year. People who follow Christ as king do not make excuses for evil. Do not make excuses for the Psalm 15 word for conduct that is vile because they happen, the person that we're talking about or making excuses for happened to belong to a particular political party. This is why many Christians find themselves now politically homeless these days. Neither party fully representing or pursuing what is fully just and righteous. And then what makes choosing to vote for a particular person or a particular party with particular platforms that are just in seeming conflict internally and with one another just so difficult? Now, obviously, American representative politics is not what David has in mind here. But a person dwelling with God as their king grows or wants to grow in their discernment for loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Their allegiance is to God alone and not to a politician or to a party or to a platform. So then God's people are willing to do what is right even if it means harm or loss to themselves. Their money, their possessions, aren't used as weapons to make more money for themselves, but their money and their possessions are stewarded gifts from God to bless others with. While the rest of the world, every human out there apart from Christ, is an empty glass seeking to use other humans, seeking to use other uh, systems or parties or movements out there to fill themselves with meaning and with identity, Now God's people, being filled by the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, no longer need to be filled, but can now seek to fill others. This is the inside-out, second-nature person who walks with God. But again, none of this should now come as a summons for becoming redeemed, for becoming God's people, for finding acceptability before God because of your good and right living. This can only come through the work of Christ. And now the offensive linemen are beginning to open the hole for us. The gospel accounts are full of mountain stories, are full of stories up on a hill of Jesus Christ, the man so wrapped up into the life of God, even his human nature dwelling alongside intimately with his divine nature, walking by the Spirit, and then like Abraham and Moses and Noah and Elijah before him going up onto the mountain on behalf of his people. In Matthew, Jesus is first taken up to a high mountain where he is tempted with the promise to have the entire world and then rule it as king. Only this mountain is not the mountain of the dwelling place of God. He would be ruling apart from the Father, but this man, the God-man, he dwells with God. He is the Psalm 15 man. Next chapter in Matthew, he goes up to another mountain where he speaks for God, giving a new law as a new Moses. And in the Beatitudes that Clint read in The Call to Worship, he describes what the blessed and flourishing life with God actually looks like. The life that he experiences. The life that he knows. The life that he wants for all of us. And over and over and over again, he goes up to a high place to meet with God and to pray. One time he takes three of the apostles with him to another mountain and here his divine glory bursts through and Peter and James and John see Jesus as he really is. He is transfigured in glory and it really is and becomes an experience like Moses had many times of seeing the glory of God upon the mountain. The father even booms from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Because the Psalm 15 holy hill of Zion isn't the first time that we have seen this holy hill show up in the Psalms. Remember back in Psalm 2, many, many months ago, in Psalm 2, God says in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then David says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. At the transfiguration of Jesus, God declares from heaven that Jesus is the Psalm 2 son of David, the king ruling on the holy hill, then making him the ideal Psalm 15 man who dwells with the Father, who reveals his character from the inside out, But then the God-man is taken to another mountain, his coronation ceremony before the nations. He is lifted up above them so that all might see and worship, so that all might humble themselves and love him as their king. But his crown is not made of gold, but is made of thorns. And his throne is not soft with cushions, but it is a splintered cross of wood. And his kingdom isn't one of humiliating and dominating his enemies, but of welcoming them. For those who would come to him, not of condemnation, but of forgiveness. Not of judgment, but of grace. Not of hatred, but of love. Not of disappointment, but of acceptance. Not of continued sin. Not of walking apart from God and being separated from him but of transformation and of life with God. And so following our King is not a life of self-identification, self-expression, self-actualization, but of self-denial. Of carrying our cross behind him so that we might actually become the fulfilled people that he has created us to be. Through the work of Christ, through walking by the Spirit of God, God the Father very much cares of our growing holiness in our thoughts, in our desires, in our actions. And in the Richardson GC, we were reading about how a baby's first smile is a responsive one to the warmth and the safety of the smile of his or her mother or father. And so is our transforming Psalm 15 inside-out, responsive heart and life of obedience to God. And so to close now, for like the hundredth time I've shared this with you from Robert Murray McShane, for every one look to self, take ten looks to Christ, his love for you, his work on your behalf, the transformation that his cross and empty tomb now brings in Psalm fifteen six, he who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. O triune God, we are humbled that you are more committed to our joy, more committed to our growing holiness than even we are. Help us make us more humble, make us more aware of our weakness, make us more dependent upon the Spirit and excited and energized by the victory that Jesus brings. Make us more confident, not always looking back and in doubt based on our last day or last week or last year of disobedience, but help us to look confidently in faith at the obedient life of Christ, but help us not to stop there. You have not just come, Lord Jesus, to get us off the hook, to get our sins forgiven, but you have come to make us holy. You have come to transform us entirely for your glory that we might have a joy-filled and flourishing life, to be filled by your spirit that we might then be able to seek to fill others. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.